Every time you uh, turn on your television set or whenever you uh, look at the monitor on your computer screen or if you look at your phone for whatever reasons, I know we're always really attached to our phones, or whether you look at a picture, a digital picture, your mind sees an image. But what you don't see is that the image that you are looking at is comprised of millions of little dots called pixels. Um, Pixels are, um, well, they're just little dots and there's millions of them and they make up the picture. Now, here's the thing. You and I, when we go and we turn on our computer or we look at a digital photo or we look at our computer monitor, you and I, just all we really care about is the image. We don't really care about all the little dots that make up the image. Now, there's probably a few techie guys in here, techie gals, who care about the pixels, but most of us, we just want to see this. what's the image that I'm looking for. Nobody goes to, to Beth to have her take great photos and say, you know, man, I, I take some great pixels. I want to make sure that the pixels are great. Nobody cares about the pixels. All we care about is the image. Until, of course, the pixels are messed up. And when the pixels get messed up, then all of a sudden we begin to have a concern about the little dots. Or perhaps if there are no little dots and all we got is a blank screen. Or what happened if somebody rearranged all the pixels and gave us a different image? Then we would have concern. Then all of a sudden pixels become interesting to us. When your TV starts showing all sorts of little splotty little blocks and dots, then we're concerned. So what does pixels and pictures have to do with the book of Revelation? Well, absolutely nothing. I just thought I'd share that. (laughs) Actually, that was the image that kept coming to my mind as I'm studying Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to be looking just at verses 1 through 3 today. I kept finding myself really delving down into the minutiae, the pixels, if you will, and really concentrating on pixels. And I had to periodically remind myself that nobody really cares about the pixels. What we're interested in is the picture. But here's the thing, folks. The picture that we're interested in is made up of pixels. And we need to concern ourselves with the pixels in order to come up with a a good picture. So, here's the mistake I think that we can often make. We can become so enamored with the minutia of text of the text of the scripture that we fail to see the big picture. We can be so, become so enthralled with the pixels that we forget there's a, that they are combined to make a picture. On the other hand, we can be so enamored with the picture that we don't care how we get there. In other words, just tell me what it means. How does this affect my life? Tell me how this affects my family. I don't care how you get there. Well, we should care how we get there. Because if we rearrange the pixels, we can come up with an image that is distorted. And so, as we go through Revelation chapter 20, we are going to be concerning ourselves with pixels and pictures. In fact, a lot of today is going to be dealing with pixels. I hope to periodically return ourselves back to what is the big picture, what is the big theme. But in order for us to see the picture, I've got to show you the pixels. And so that's what pixels have to do with Revelation chapter 20. And so we need to have a, net, we need to have a good balance between looking at the details and seeing what the big picture is. Either of those to an extreme give us a distorted view of God's word. And so let me give you a little bit of preview. This is where I, I want to go today. These, by the way, are pixels, okay? These will be the two pixels that we look at. 
The pixels that we're going to look at is I, I want to discuss what is the relationship between the millennium and the parousia. Now, I just baffled you. We're going to unpack millennium, so just leave that word alone. And I put parousia because that just means the second coming of Christ. But I put parousia because it's more efficient, right? I can put second coming of Christ all the time, all right? Which is like, I don't know how many letters that is, but it's a bunch of letters. Whereas parousia is, what is that, seven? All right? So it, I'm lazy, okay? And it's just easier for me to write parousia. So you can just learn a new word. Parousia means second coming of Christ. So what is the relationship between the millennium, which we'll discuss in just a second, and the second coming of Christ? That's the first pixel we're going to look at. The second pixel we want to look at is what is the purpose and the extent of the binding of Satan? So you're going, well, I never thought about that. I never even heard about any of that. Well, today you will hear about it. So if it's new to you, great. If it's not new to you, we have fireworks. Now, those are the pixels, but let me, let me show you the picture. Why do we need to understand these two pixels? We need to understand them because, folks, I want you to know this. Here's the big picture. The picture is this. You and I live in a time of great opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations. And you and I live in an unprecedented time to do that. That's the big picture. Listen, I, I watched the news this week. Man, it, things are bad. Things are bad. I, I don't know how else to put it. You can say, well, there are no worse. It's just we have better forms of communication. Well, maybe that's so. I don't know. Things just seem to be getting worse. The world is getting dark, really dark. But you and I are still light. And the darker that things get, the brighter you and I are to shine. Amen. And here's, I mean... Literally, some girl got suspended from school for saying, God bless you, to a kid who sneezed. <laughs> right? Okay, this is how things, you can see that, you know, our faith, that the, our faith in Christ Jesus is being, mm, trying to be snuffed out. We live in a darker, darkening world. But we are still light and we can reflect the glory of Christ. And we need to understand that the usurper to the throne, Satan, has been cast down. Jesus reigns so that we will desire to live in, for him and not for this world. That's the big picture. I want us to desire to live for Christ and not for the things of this world. That's the big picture. But in order for us to get to the big picture, we've got to concern ourselves with these, at least these two pixels. At least for today. So let's go ahead and look at Revelation chapter 20 as we continue our study through this book. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the whole chapter. It's not that long. But let's just read the whole chapter. And we're going to spend, I don't know, at least two or three weeks in this particular chapter. And we should have a good understanding of what's going on. So Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, goes like this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night 
forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, and every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I think I can say that in the past 14 years being pastor of this church, I will say that this is the most difficult passage of text I have ever encountered. And I say that not to say that we can't understand it or to cause cause anybody to shy away from looking more deeply at it. It is really, really hard. It's hard for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons it's hard is because it speaks of things that are not spoken of anywhere else in the Bible. So we really don't have a whole lot of cross-references. Because you know what we do. We, we use scripture to interpret scripture. And there's not a whole lot of other scripture to interpret this. So it makes it really hard. I praise God that we have hard passages of text. Because it causes us to realize that we are not the master of God's word. That God's word is to master us. And we come to these things and we say, oh my goodness, great men and women of God have understood this passage in a number of different ways. And it's easy to be snide and sarcastic and say, yeah, but they don't have it all together. We do. I don't have this all together. I'm going to take you through these pixels. In the, and I'm going to use... To the best of my ability, good tools of interpretation so that you and I can form together accurate pixels arranged in a proper order so that we will see the big picture. That's my goal. But I want you to understand this is a humbling text. And if anybody comes to it arrogantly saying that somehow they know and that everybody who disagrees with them is a heretic, I have problems. This is a very humbling text. So let's begin with defining our terms. How many have heard the term millennium? Okay. I was going to ask you, do you know what millennium means? But I already gave you the answer. <laughs> millennium is really simple. It's just a fancy word for meaning a thousand years. That's it. So when we read about the millennium, we read about the thousand years. And some of our translations say the thousand years. Now, when we read this particular chapter of Scripture, pretty much everybody believes in the thousand years or the millennium. But more likely than not, everybody who is Christian falls into one of three camps. There might be four, but I'm not going to deal with it. Um, Because it's... Anyways, three camps. Remember what our question is. Our question is trying to determine what is the relationship between the second coming of Christ and the millennium. We're not really trying to describe what the millennium is. Just what is the relationship between the return of Christ and this thousand years that's mentioned in our passage of text. Now, I'm going to go over some of these things, but a while back, Jaime in our Sunday school taught taught this, and he taught it brilliantly. And so, those of you who are in the Sunday school class probably already know this, so I'm going to refresh your memory. But those of you who missed it, um, maybe this is a refresher, maybe this is new. But let's talk about the relationship between the thousand years and the second coming of Christ. And the first of the three big camps are what we would call premillennial. And premillennial just simply means that Jesus returns prior to pre the millennium, the thousand years. So, what do we have for the premillennials? Jesus returns from heaven, and then there is the thousand years. Does that make sense? Premillennial. Jesus is pre the thousand years. Real simple. See, it sounds fancy, right? Premillennial sounds like a big word, sounds real fancy. It's not. 
Break it down, it just means prior to the thousand years. Now let me just introduce you to two subcategories of premillennialists. All of these big categories have subcategories, but we're just going to talk about, I want to mention two subgroups within premillennialism simply because of their prominence. The first subgroup is called historic premillennialists. Okay? The reason they're called historic premillennialists, actually the fancy name is Kilius, but the, the, the reason they're called that is because this is, historic premillennial is probably the most, the most ancient, or can be stated with some level of certainty, the most ancient understanding of the church. Historic premillennialism goes way back. It goes back to Papias, who lived between 60 and 30 A.D. Justin Martyr held to historic premillennialism. Um, he died in 165 A.D. Irenaeus uh, held to this. Tertullian held to this. So from the 1st and 2nd century, we see historic premillennialism. And I'm not going to go into all of the details, but I will tell you this. It is vastly different from what we're about to talk about. Vastly different. Um, but it's very very early on in the church we begin to see this that Jesus returns and then comes the millennium the second subcategory of premillennialists are what we will call dispensational premillennialists how's that? I would, I would guess that the majority of people in this church are dispensational premillennialists. You're going, well, I can't be. I don't even know what that means. It's like, well, believe me, I bet you are. And dispensational premillennialism is vastly different to historic premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism is extremely popular, held by probably just about everybody who writes books today and who is on the radio and is popular. But we don't see dispensational premillennialism until 1830. Um, John Darby, um, John Nelson Darby, is the one who pretty much kind of systematized this idea and around the mid-19th century. Here's how dispensational premillennialism goes, just so that you guys know. Um, what it, here's, here's how it goes. It's real simple. Well, it's not real simple. But here's how it is in a nutshell. The next big event um, in, in regards to the end times or the second coming of Christ, the next big event is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church takes place. All Christians are gone. Then there's a seven-year period of tribulation, right? And then during that seven-year period of tribulation, uh, the Antichrist arises, and he sets himself up as God and King, and, you know, he makes things really, really bad, and things get really bad, and then Christ returns, judges the Antichrist, sets up the thousand-year reign, and then we have the great white throne judgment after a thousand years. Okay, many of you might hold that view, or at least have been taught that view. That's what I was always taught. As soon as I became a Christian, that's what I knew. That's the only thing I knew. And I considered it settled science. Um, I don't any longer. But, but, but you all know, right, that movie Left Behind is coming out, right? You've all seen it, right? That, that's dispensational premillennialism. If you've read the books, Left Behind, dispensational premillennialism. And... It is what we, we hear today. If you ask people, what's the next big event on the end time calendar? They're going to tell you the rapture of the church. So there's premillennialism. And I'll stop there. But let's go on to postmillennialism. Now, this, this is really easy also. Postmillennialism in relationship to the t- return of Christ is that the millennium happens after, post the millennium. So the millennium comes first. And then, after some sort of golden age of the gospel having reigned on the world, that the, the gospel goes out and people begin to follow Christ and the general, over, the general world view of the earth is Christian. I don't think post-millennialists think that there will be no wickedness. I think most of them say, though, that the general idea is that the gospel goes forth and that, in general, the world becomes Christian. That's a nice view. 
And then, the world being mostly Christian and guided by Christian principles, Christ returns to a primarily Christian world. Post-millennialism. Guys like R.C. Sproul are post-millennial. R.C. Sproul's a great teacher. Loves the Lord. Wish he knew half as much as he did. It's also very early. We see it fairly early on. We see Eusebius um, holding to it and Athanasius. And if you know, you know that I think Athanasius is probably the greatest historical church figure ever. Um, he was post-millennial. All right, so that's pre-millennial and post-millennial, whatever. And then we have all whatever. Now, some of you may know that when you put an A in front of something, you negate it, right? So if you put an A in front of theist, you have an atheist, right? Doesn't believe in God. So an all millennial, you would think they don't believe in the millennium. Well, it's a little bit of a misnomer, and it's not actually, that's not accurate. Uh, all millennials do believe in a, in a thousand years. Um, that's why some people are starting to call it realized millennialism or inaugurated millennialism, anyways. But, but they believe that the thousand years is figurative, it's not literal. By the way, a lot of post millennials and historic premillennialists will believe in a. Uh, figure to thousand years and it began with Jesus when Jesus came that inaugurated the kingdom and that kingdom um, extends until Christ returns this is also a very very early teaching though it's somewhat disputed how early some would say that uh, well we see Hermas who he lived in the first century he taught millennialism. Polycarp, who is a disciple of John, is a little disputed whether or not he taught this or not. He doesn't say much explicitly about it, but he definitely leans that direction. He was a disciple of John. John wrote the book of Revelation. And then we see some very early other uh, saints, uh, Clement of Rome and Ignatius, but we don't see all millennialism really systematized until the 4th century under a guy by the name of Augustine. Okay, so there's our history lesson. There's our views. Those are probably somewhere along the way you fit into one of those three categories or you have no idea. But every single one of those views comes from our text. That's why we're talking about it. Whether you're pre or post or all or something else, you get your view from this text. Because it's the only text in the Bible that talks about the millennium, at least explicitly. Nowhere else in the Bible will you find this teaching. And so all of us, all of these guys, find their understanding of the millennial, millennium from Revelation chapter 20. Boy, if Revelation chapter 20 didn't exist, it would be a lot easier. But we all have completely different views of what's going to happen in the future. But it does exist, so we have to deal with it. So, here we go. Let's talk about the millennium and the return of Jesus. We believe here at the church, and we teach and we hold as one of the core doctrines in the physical, bodily return of Jesus Christ, that he will come again personally, bodily, not some spirit thing. It is a real personal return of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the return of Christ and the millennium. And what is the relationship between these, these two things? Well, in order to get there, okay, right now we're going, we're going into pixels, and you're going to have to put your thinking hats on, or you're going to have to take a nap. All right? Or perhaps looking at these pixels might cause you to nap. I hope not, because... To me, it's interesting. We want to ask ourselves, before we can ask ourselves, or before we can answer what is the connection between the second coming and the millennium, we have, to, we have to arrange some pixels. And the way we arrange our pixels is going to determine how the picture looks. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to decide um, the relationship between the last verses of chapter 19 and the first verses of chapter 20. Let me read these. Last verses of chapter 19. I'll begin with verse 20, 21. Uh, I'll start. Yeah, 21. And the rest were killed, and the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. 
Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it. And I'll stop there. So, most of us are going to read that and say, well, chapter 20 comes out to chapter 19. And so, therefore, the events of chapter 20, verse 1, must occur after chapter 19, verse 21. Do you understand what I just said? All right? It's very chronological, right? That one event follows the next. And if you put this together chronologically, if you put the pixels together chronologically, that Revelation chapter 19, 21 is followed by chapter 20, verse 1, you are going to end up with a completely different view than if you don't put them together chronologically. Do you see how important... I'm going to show you, this is one of the reasons why it is so important when we structure a book and look at how the book is structured. Because it will determine, oftentimes, how you understand everything. And how you understand this is going to determine your picture. How you arrange these pixels will determine the picture. So, one way to look at it is that it's chronological. And that, for us in the West, is certainly the most natural way to do things. I don't think it's chronological. And you guys have been with me as we've gone through the book of Revelation. I've never taken a chronological approach. I've always taken a cyclical approach, haven't I? I've been saying that the events of Revelation keep repeating themselves over and over again. That's why we see the return of Christ over and over again. That's why we see some of the same things happening over and over and over again. Cyclical. I think this is cyclical. Let me show you why. Understand, by my taking a cyclical view, I am arranging the pixels. And they're going to paint a different picture. Let me also say this, that we are not free to arrange the pixels any way we want. Here's one of the dangers, is that we have a picture in view and then we arrange the, picture, the pixels to match the picture. Does that mean, That's wrong. We look at the pixels and we see how they're arranged and we look at the Whatever image they produce is the image that we behold. And so wherever these things lead us, that's where they lead us. But I do need you to understand that I'm understanding this as a cyclical, from a cyclical viewpoint, and here is why. In chapter 19, verses 17 through 21, we see a final battle. And in this final battle, we see the culmination of the destruction of the beast and the false prophet and all of those who follow them. It is comprehensive. The beast and the false prophet and all those who worship his image are judged. All those who worship his image. In this final battle, the beast and the false prophet are judged, and everybody else who follow them are, how did we describe it last week? Your dinner. Right? Remember that? You became dinner for the birds of the air. Do you remember that really graphic image, how God calls for the birds of the air to eat the flesh of those who rebelled? You'll recall where, we, where John got that language. John just didn't make that language up. He just didn't pull it out of the hat. He got it from the Old Testament. And you'll recall that he got it from Ezekiel chapter 19. Or I'm sorry, chapter 39. What's interesting here is in Ezekiel chapter 39, Ezekiel chapter 39 describes a guy by the name of Gog, G-O-G. And Gog is, uh, so any of you looking for baby names? Gog. Gog was the ruler of a place called Magog. And they rebelled against God, G-O-D, and despised him, and God judged Gog of Magog. And the way he judged him, he says, I'm going to come down and slaughter you, and I'm going to call all the birds of heaven, and they're going to eat your flesh. And then, in chapter 19, we see that exact same imagery. Alright, so John has taken language out of the book of Ezekiel and applied it to this last battle. Okay? Are we good with that? Let's go ahead and jump forward to chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. 
When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, okay, and will come out to deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. I have another final battle. And notice the imagery. It's Gog and Magog. John is using the exact same language. I think these are the same battles, in other words. The battle of chapter 19 and the battle of chapter 20 are the exact same battles being told from different perspectives, which fits how I've been telling you the book of Revelation is structured, that it repeats the same thing over and over again from a different perspective. Just like when you watch, um, you're all going to go home and watch football today, and you're going to watch the replays, and you're going to see it from different angles. The book of Revelation does that exact same thing. It's not foreign to Scripture. We've talked about We see that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so we see the same final battle, and John is using the same language to describe the same battle, only from different perspectives. From the perspective of chapter 19, we see the judgment of the false prophet and the beast. And in the, in the battle of chapter 20, we see the judgment of the dragon, Satan. I think actually you can go back to chapter 16 and you can see the same battle, um, same final battle. And you'll see the judgment of Babylon. Then in 19, the judgment of the beast and the false prophet. And then in chapter 20, the judgment of Satan. In other words, God clears out all evil because he's preparing the new heaven and new earth. That's how I see this. I think it's cyclical. And the reason I think it's cyclical and the same battle from two different vantage points is because John quotes Ezekiel in both of these to describe the same battle. A couple of other reasons is that um, after the battle of chapter 19, there's nobody left. So I don't know where this great multitude comes from in chapter 20, because they all died. They're dead. There are a couple of ideas of where that came from. Perhaps somebody survived the battle. Perhaps people in the millennium gave birth to sinners. I guess that, that's, that could be. I'm not going to go into why I'm not persuaded by that. Here's what I am persuaded. Since we have no... We have no other cross-references on the millennium in the Bible. But we do have something very, very important. The Bible talks about two ages, and only two ages, the present age and the age to come. And what I am describing here describes two ages, the present age, which is evil, and the age to come, which is where Christ reigns. We don't have any other ages. That's it. Well, now... There's my understanding of the millennium. Now I want to go to our second pixel, and our second pixel is the binding of Satan. Because what's important to note is that the second battle happened prior to the millennium. Did you read that in chapter 20, verse 7? And at the end of the millennium, this is what this means. This is how I understand it. Gosh, I can't believe I'm going to say this in public. This rules out premillennialism. Gone. But you notice, it depends on how you, how you arrange the pixels. If it's chronological, you will have premillennialism. And if it is not chronological, you have to rule out premillennialism. I can't believe I just said that. And that's on tape. Because the thousand years happens before the return of Christ. Aha, but you say, but wait a second, there's a problem, and the problem is Satan is bound. What about the binding of Satan? When did this happen? How does this happen? What's the nature of the binding of Satan? Well, when I talk about Satan being bound, here's what comes to my mind, and I'm going to kind of presume that it comes to your mind as well. And if it doesn't, then forgive me. The binding of Satan, when I read about Satan being bound, here's what comes into my mind, that Satan is prohibited from all satanic activity. Does anybody else? That's how I think of it. Satan is prohibited from all satanic activity because he can't do devil things. Because he's bound. That makes sense. So then, the big question is this. Well then, if the millennium is before the 
return of Christ and Satan is bound during the millennium. I don't know, I'm thinking things don't seem doesn't seem very good right now. It doesn't seem like he's too tied up right now. It seems like he's going about doing a whole lot of crazy things. That's a good question. That's a real problem. That's a real problem for the view I just told you. So let's look. What is the binding of Satan? I'm going to try to use the text and the text alone to determine this. What we need to ask is, does the binding of Satan immobilize him from all activity? That's our question. Does the binding of Satan immobilize him from all devil activity? Well, we're going to look to the text, and we're going to look to what the text says, and then we'll also pay attention to what the text doesn't say. So, chapter 20, verse 2, And he, the angel, laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Did you notice the purpose clause? All of you English majors, or all of you people who like me who didn't do well at English going now what is a purpose clause a purpose clause is that word those two words so that really important when you are studying the Bible you need to look for clauses like because so that for this reason in order that those are really I know they're boring words but they are huge when we come to understanding the scripture And so I saw that he was bound so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. What's explicit in the text? The binding of Satan is limited to the devil deceiving the nations. That's it. Now, we can understand that really broadly. We can say, well, that means he can't do anything. Is there anything else that can help clarify this? Yes, I think there is. Look at verse Look at verse 8, and we see what happens when Satan is unbound. And I think when Satan gets unbound, we begin to see a little more clear the picture of his binding. When he is unbound and he is released from his prison, he will come out and deceive the nations. We've already seen that, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And here it is, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the sea. And they came up upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So here's the binding. The binding is that he can't deceive the nations. But when he's loose, what does he do? He just, it's not a general deception. It is a deception that gathers the people from the four corners of the earth to make war against the church. Alright? That's what's explicit. That's what we know. I, I'm not trying to pull anything up. It, that's exactly what it says. So the binding of Satan seems to me to be very limited. That he is bound so that he can't deceive the nations by gathering together from the four corners of the earth to attack and kill the church. However, after the thousand years, he will be able to attack and kill the church. Or he will be, he'll deceive the nations to think that they can kill the people of God. Notice what, what it doesn't say. It doesn't mention anything in here about some sort of golden age where there's bliss and lions are lying down with lambs. And whatever you do with lions lying down with lambs, it's spoken of in the Old Testament. That's another matter. But we just don't see a golden age. What we know from the text is that Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations so that he will not gather people together to come against the saints of God. That's what we know. So I don't believe that the binding of Satan it means a complete cessation of activity. What Satan is bound, and he does not have the authority to do, is he doesn't have the authority to destroy the church. Which makes sense, because Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against my church. I don't believe that this is a, thousand, a literal 1,000 years. You're not surprised by that. Um, just like I don't think that there's a literal chain and lock binding a, a spiritual being called Satan. These are metaphors that are, these are symbolic, just like the whole book of Revelation is symbolic. A thousand years is not literal, any more than when we, when we read the, 
the Bible says that the cattle own, the, the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But on the thousand first, it's like, oh, those are mine. No, we're saying that God owns them all. Or when we say that God will bless you to the thousandth generation, we're saying, oh, that's pretty good, except for you guys born in the thousand and the first generation. Too bad, so sad, they're not blessed. I'm just saying that a thousand years is a long period of time, and more importantly, it's an undefined period of time. It's a long period of time, but it's undefined. And so what we have is that for a long, undefined period of time, Satan is bound to come against the people of God and destroy the church, but there will come a day when he is loosed and he will do just that. So his binding is limited. I say that because I'm not trying try not to bring any presuppositions into the text and I have a million of them Are there, could there be any help for us is there anywhere else where Satan being bound is anywhere else in scripture because we want to use scripture to interpret scripture so is the binding of Satan mentioned anywhere else in the Bible well I'm glad you asked it's very limited there's only two other places where this word and for binding is used in reference to Satan. And we see it in Matthew chapter 12. There's a parallel account in Mark chapter 3. And it's where Jesus heals a demoniac and he is accused of casting out devils by the prince of devils. He's accused of casting out Satan by Satan. And I know I'm, I'm going to hustle here a little bit. But I need to give you the context here because you'll remember John the Baptist was in prison. And John the Baptist was in prison and he began to doubt. And he, and, and he asked some disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? And Jesus said this. He said, go tell John what you see and hear. The dead are raised and the lame walk and the blind see and the lepers are healed. In other words, the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah are being done through me. That's how you know that I am him. Well, then Jesus goes on and he heals a demoniac. And the Pharisees, they ask a very similar question. They just phrase it a little differently, but the the intent is still the same. But they have a whole different perspective. They're saying, you're not the Messiah. Even though we see the works of the Messiah being done through you, our take is that you can't be the Messiah. You must be doing all of those things by the power of Satan. In chapter 12, verse 22 through following, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, That's ridiculous, I paraphrased. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? So Jesus is saying, listen, that's ridiculous. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. That doesn't make any sense. And then he goes on and says this, If I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Good question. For this reason, they will be your judges. Now, here's the crux of this issue but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you this is a big issue for the Pharisees he's saying that if I do this by the spirit of God and not by demons which is ridiculous I've already disproven that then the kingdom of God has come and I am the king of that kingdom then he says this Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and he will plunder his house? So how how do you know the kingdom has come? Because Messiah is doing the works of the Messiah. And then Jesus goes on and says that the kingdom has come. Basically, I'm the king of that kingdom and I've come into Satan's domain to plunder him and I plunder him by binding him. I bind the strong man and I plunder his house. What does Jesus actually plunder? Does he take some sort of gold and riches? No, he takes the souls of men. He opens the door to the gospel so that men might be saved. 
I've got a bunch of other scriptures there, but I'm not going to go into them because they're kind of secondary and I don't think we need to spend time with them. The works of Jesus constitutes the binding of Satan. In other words, Jesus comes and he takes back those who are enslaved by the devil. That's what he does. He binds the strong man and takes back those who are enslaved by the devil. And how does he take back those who are enslaved by the devil? By the preaching of the gospel. Now, after Jesus died and rose from the dead, was there some sort of great advance in the gospel spread? Anybody think, can think of maybe there's a scripture somewhere that the gospel went out after Jesus? Yeah, amazing. Think about this. Israel lived for a, existed for a long, long time, and she was supposed to be a light to the nations, and she wasn't. In fact, she was dark herself. And then Jesus comes, binds the strong man, opens up the gates of heaven, and then on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved. In fact, people start teaching in other languages, so the whole world hears the gospel and is rescued out of the domain of Satan because he can't do anything about the church going out and proclaiming the gospel. He can't stop it. There's nothing he can do. Oh, he's going to try to hinder you. He might even kill a few people. But he can't amass the nations of the earth to come against the church because the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. This is what I believe is the binding of Satan based on the scriptures we have. And the explicit understanding. I don't have to make anything up to get there. I don't think. Maybe I did. I don't have to presume anything. I don't have to assume anything. I can just look at the text and say, this is what we have. These are the pixels we have. And this is how they, I think they go together. And then, therefore, this is the picture that we end up with. Just think, on the day that Christ rose from the, well, after Christ rose from the dead, he filled his his disciples with the Spirit of God, sent the Spirit, and Peter preached 3,000 souls. And if that isn't enough, they spoke in other languages. In other words, the whole world was gathered together in Jerusalem and on that day the whole world heard the gospel and people were saved. Satan is defeated. Not from all activity. He still goes about roaring like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He's still an adversary. He's still a foe. But he cannot gather. He is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations to gather them together come against the church and he will do that he will be bound for a long undefined period of time but I will tell you this there will come a day when Satan will be unbound and he will gather the forces from Gog and Magog from the four corners of the earth and he will gather them together against the church and he will fight I love the end of the battle though because there isn't one fire came down from heaven and it was over So I guess probably no matter how you put the pixels together, I think we probably all agree on that, that Jesus wins. Let me conclude with this. I know I've just dumped a whole bunch on you. I've probably, um, I guarantee that some of you are saying, I don't believe that at all. Some of you are going, I don't know what I believe. I guess that's okay. Don't even go on, I don't leave. That was just too confusing. Some of you are going, I can't believe somebody actually said it for once. So what's the picture? What's the big picture? We've looked at the pixels. What's the big picture? The big picture is this. That we are living in a great a time of great opportunity to take the gospel into the entire world. Because right now, Satan cannot stop the church. Look at China. China is a missionary-sending country. My goodness, the church is oppressed. But the church... But all of the power, all of the might, all of the wealth, all of the hatred towards the church in China can't stop it. Can't. They're coming here to evangelize us. We're going to Ecuador. Ecuador is a socialist country. And they're sending missionaries all over the world. The socialist country cannot stop the church. They can't. They can restrict it. They can beat people. They can do all kinds of things. But they cannot stop it. Because Satan is bound. 
That's the big picture. You and I live in a time where we can go out and share the gospel to the whole world. That doesn't even mean we have to go to the whole world. We have a ministry called Life Among the Nations at ASU. The whole world comes to ASU. And we preach the gospel right there to the whole world. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. And he's got a friend who works at a... Um, who has house churches and all of these high rises in Miami? The whole world's in Miami. And he's got the Haitians in this tower, and he's got Africans in this tower, and he's got Serbians in the other tower, and he's got churches all over these little towers. And it goes from floor to floor because there's churches on all these floors of these buildings. He doesn't go anywhere, he goes downtown. And the world is there, and he's preaching the gospel to the world. God declare, and we are living in a time, folks, we can take the gospel anywhere. we got these crazy little light things right here. Do you realize that a sheep herder in Uzbekistan can hear the gospel because of one of these little thingies? A goat herder in Serbia can hear the gospel. Oh, try to stop the church. You can't. And Satan can't. You and I have the opportunity to share the gospel and to take it. This is what God said. God said that my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And guess what? Guess who's going to do that? Guess who he is equipped to spread his glory over the earth? I know it seems crazy, but the church. David prayed that... uh, the, the. that this whole idea of the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea would be fulfilled by the Messiah. And now disciples are taking the gospel to all of the nations. Folks, John's readers read this. And they have to think, we are the image bearers of Christ. And Caesar, as powerful as he is, cannot stop us. Oh, he may kill us. And then immediately, as soon as we're dead, we're in the presence of our glorious Lord and Savior. And the church keeps going on. And if Satan slays you this second, the church goes on. Because he can't stop that. He can stop you. But he can't stop Christ's church. But there will come a day. I think that day is coming close. I think it's picking up steam. You can't even say, God bless you, to a kid in school. Oh my goodness, that darkness is growing. I don't know when all of this happens. But I know right now, you and I have opportunity like we've, like nobody's ever had. And we have the Spirit of God. We have technology. We've got all kinds of things to share the gospel. I want you to know that Satan is not sovereign. God is. Christ is reigning right now in heaven. Crown him with many crowns. And there is nothing that should hinder us from being the powerful force of the Spirit of God that has called us to be the people of God. And so now, folks, it is time. There is no reason. The church cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped. We look around and we think, oh, woe to the church. It's got this, it's got this problem. It's collapsing from within. Maybe so. But Christ is on the throne and the gates of hell, not even the gates of hell, will prevail against the church. But there will come a day when Satan is loose and he will fight and he will call all of the kings to fight and to seek to destroy the church. And when that day comes, our glorious Lord and Savior returns. And what a great day that will be. Let's stand and let's pray. Thank <laughs> you.